the time when wargamers played with chainmail and the rise of the wizards of the coast, there was an age of gamers. And unto this, Gygax, destined to bear the crown jewel of TSR upon a troubled brow, to show you all how to roll for initiative. Volume 2 of the Roll for Initiative podcast. This is issue number 63. I am one of your hosts, DM Vince, along with DM Nick. Hey there, everybody. Yay. And sitting in again is DM Will. I guess we can call you DM Will now. Oh, no, that's perfect. Hello, everyone. Well, very wonderful show for you this week. Uh, first of all, let's start off with uh, Week in Gaming. Nick, what have you been up to? Uh, not a whole lot on the gaming situation, actually. Still trying to figure out what we're going to do for our our home game uh, after my friend Jeff leaves for Afghanistan. Mm. So we're trying to figure out what we're going to play. So I'm um, I'm hoping that we kind of do maybe a little bit of everything. Maybe a few few game sessions. We'll do one thing, then we'll move on to something else. Just a little mix would be kind of cool. Just kind of mix it up a little. Cool. Uh, Will, what have you been up to? Oh, no, everything has been well. Uh, you know, ran my normal four games that I run weekly and everything. I did uh, a couple trips out to Seattle and to some of the local stores to uh, try and get as much, you know, first edition material possible. And I hit some big-time gems this week. I'm I very saw, impressed. I saw some of the pictures you put in the forums. Yeah, no, I know. I was just like, you know, when I go out, I hit every main, you know, bookstore out there and everything. If I can find something that's worthwhile saving, I'm going to do it. And I picked up a lot more uh, board games this week, so I'm looking forward to playing some of those here in my free time. Cool. And I've been uh, just uh, rearing to go. Book of Sorrow starts up this Thursday. Hopefully everybody will be there in attendance so we can play. I've been writing that mostly, so we'll see how it goes. So the forums, jumping, jiving, you know, whatever. Having a fun time. Nick's been there more and more time, I noticed. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Yeah, you know, I've been busy. It's this time of year, my kids are busy, so it makes make sure I'm busy, too. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you got to gotta keep busy and everything, but don't ever forget gaming. Don't leave that behind. That's right. Well, try not to. Oh, it's gaming.org. Uh, as we know, the DM screen was up. And gone, it sold out faster than we could wow. talk about it. So uh, we, we'll probably get more. We'll see. We shall see. I just put up tonight, I can actually say this because it's legit. I put up the player's reference book for Osric. I actually went in there and spliced up the book and made my own little version of the reference book. I sent it in uh, to uh, Stuart Marshall, and he uh, gave me the double thumbs up to put it up because it really—I didn't really do much except put a different cover on it and edit it. So now we have a player's book. That's awesome. So I put that up so people can just download it for free, or they can do print on demand and Lulu, uh, Lulu like he does. So look for that. As a matter of fact, I did look at it today and everything, and all I saw was the uh, PDF for sale. I didn't see a download for free button. There isn't. No, I didn't see that. It was right below it. That's strange. I must have missed it then, or I did not scroll all the way down. Yeah, because I can't charge any for that, so yeah. It's probably it's probably right there. I just Maybe I didn't highlight it good enough. I'll look after the show. Nick? Yeah, we got uh, stars this week on iTunes. We got one five-star review from 
Christopher Stogdill, who I know, and uh, hello, Chris, out there. <laughs> and he says, great RPG podcast highlighting a first edition D&D. And he gives us five stars. He says, excellent late podcast with exceptional new bumpers. Seriously, guys, best I've ever heard that manages to produce quality sessions in a timely manner. In my experience, most episodic hour-long podcasts are filled with off-topic or irrelevant chatter and horrible background noise. At best, you get an hour of guys just chatting back and forth without much formatting or editing. RFI uses a well-defined segments, well, uses well-defined segments, allows the host to chatter a bit, but mostly on topic. I originally only listened to the podcast because GM Nick, should be DM Nick, but I have my reasons, <laughs> is an acquaintance buddy of mine, and he respectfully mentions Hackmaster from time to time. If you want a little more from your podcast, RFI also has their own website and forums where they actually solicit input and share new content in a forum, format that GMs for many systems can find useful. So that was our review from Chris there out in Idaho. Well, I know Chris is a pretty long-time friend, acquaintance of mine, and uh, appreciate the review. And um, what is anybody this else wants to give us reviews, head on over to iTunes and over in the iTunes store, type in the search for Roll for Initiative, and just follow the links from there. Awesome. So what's his reason for calling you GM because of Hackmaster? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we go quite a few years back. We only meet during like the conventions, either at Origins or Gen Con, and we'll we'll chat on the uh, on the forums at Kenzer and Company. But yeah. uh, you know, for the yeah. most part, great guy, good friend, and uh, you know, I appreciate him uh, listening to the show. He even said, you know, been doing the past year. He goes, I love your show. Your guys are great. And so I'm like, well, thanks. So. And he's helped me a lot in, uh, you know, when we've done tournaments for Hackmaster in the past, which is kind of ties into what we're going to be talking about tonight, which we'll, I guess, get to in a little bit. Well, I wish he was there at Gen Con when I was uh, learning how to play Hackmaster, because I think I would have liked it more if he showed me. Well, I think he's kind of shied away from the newer edition. He prefers, I, I can't speak for him, but I think I... I think he likes Fort Worth more, but who knows? I don't know. No, that's all good, and that's why that, that's a GM for that. If you're a DM, that's D&D only. No other place <laughs> would be called a DM. Yeah, that's true. Not unless you call yourself, like, I don't know, Detergent Master or something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's, let's head into Sage Advice. Master! Master! They're at the gates again! Master! It looks like another band of... Adventurers! Adventurers? Again? Always the same. Coming to me for sage advice. So, Nick, you want to sing this week? Sage advice. Sage advice. We got some sage advice. Actually, we got a request for us on on Twitter to to keep singing sage advice. God. (laughs) Oh Lord. Anyway, we have a voicemail. Fan following. That's kind of scary. Yeah. Right. (laughs) We got a voicemail this week, so let's start off with that. And I'll mute your microphones and I'll hit play. 
Hello, RFI. This is DM Dwayne from Southern Arizona. And I have a question about the first edition Rangers. Now, I can't find either the player's handbook, the Dunder Master Guide, or the Honors Arcana, anything about Rangers from one first edition being able to use two weapons at the same time. Um, I think this is a second edition thing. So, if you allow Rangers in your first edition games to use weapons two-handed, do you then take away their ability at weapon specialization um, from Unearth Arcana? Or do you let them have that as well? Um, just curious, and I have one more question for y'all, but I'll email that because I'm not sure how to pronounce the word. You guys are doing great. I uh, love seeing y'all on the forums, and y'all have a great night. Bye. Cool. So, anyone have an answer for this one? Anyone? Well, well, I have an answer for everything, and it may not be the right answer, though. Well, it's definitely a second edition rule. We can give you that. Yeah, that's for sure. It definitely is a second edition, you know, rule. It's, it's definitely not in the first edition, unless it was something that was mentioned in Dragon Magazine back in the early days and everything. So, but I guess this question is, if it is a second edition rule, what would we do for first edition? I might allow a ranger to use a long sword and maybe like a short sword as a combination for dual weapon, but I don't know. I, I have to really think about that one. What about you, Nick? Um, I mean, I would allow them to use two-handed weapons, sure, but, like, fighting two-handed, like, one two-handed sword in a hand, one hand, and, a, uh, like, a battle axe in the other? No. No. Not gonna happen. No. Oh, no, no, no. I, I would go with exactly what the first edition says, you know, if they have studded leather armor or less, then there's no penalties to the bonus if they use, you know, a, a you know, a two-handed weapon style oh, and everything. Like in second edition AD and D, right. So you would use that? Oh well. Oh, in I, first I would... edition. Well, in first edition, they, they state specifically that they're allowed to do so. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused here. I'm sorry. In second edition. Now yeah. you're getting confused. Yeah. <laughs> in second yeah. edition, the rule is that as long as they wear instead of the yes, I, I would go with that and everything. I would ignore the uh, the weapon specialization is the key issue in that. I believe. Would he? I asked. He said, "Would you reject it or keep it?" I would probably take it away as maybe the grant him the dual weapon. I don't know. I'd have to sit. I'd have to sit before the game with him and decide what we want to do without that. Yes, because I would have to go through a couple scenarios to see if this is a broken rule or if this is something that is really overpowered. Yeah, Which I, I, I'm surprised it never really. It must have come up in the Dragon Magazine because I, I mean I was flipping must. through a bunch of stuff before the show when I heard the audio for this and I was like, where can this be? Yeah, it's nowhere in the player's handbook, and I looked at Unearth Arcana, and the only thing about Rangers is, like I, I we were talking about previously before the show, is they have weapon specialization like fighters, but, like, the two-handed weapon thing, I mean, I I didn't find any rule for it. I probably wouldn't even have it then. But, I don't think I would allow the double specialization, though, if they use a two-handed weapon style. I think that might be the key, uh, the, the, the question he might have. That I would not allow the double specialization. Because double specialization is in that, in, in that ranger or fighter's choice of weapon. It's his choice of weapon. It is a choice of weapons. It's his choice of weapon. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's something to do. It's a, it's a house rule. 
Yeah, I think so. I think that's kind of a house rule thing. Anyway, thank you for your uh, voicemail, DM Dwayne. And let's head on to some of the emails we have here. Our first one comes in from Dallas. That's his name. And um, he's actually the admin of our forums, OSR forums. He says, hi, guys. Thanks for your perspectives on non-weapon proficiencies. I played a fair bit of 1.5 and 2nd edition, so I've given them a lot of thought. Forget design philosophy or old schoolness. He puts that in quotes. If I, I can do the Dr. Evil thing. Quote, <laughs> I now reject their use simplicity simply because they don't see a lot of use in my games. I believe there's a logical case for dispensing with non-weapon proficiencies anyway. One, a non-weapon proficiency is, at its core, just an ability score check. Two, DM Fiat will decide any bonus or penalty to check to model the difficulty. Were you going to say something, Will? Oh, no, go, proceed. Oh, okay. Three, that DM Fiat may include... If it makes sense, applying a non-weapon proficiency penalty, example 4 or negative 8, to a much larger if the player doesn't have the relevant non-weapon proficiency. Just like first edition player's handbook weapon proficiencies. He goes on to say, given that DMFIA plays such a big role anyway, why have non-weapon proficiencies, why have them in the first place? Just rule what feels right. Finally, some questions. Question 1. <sighs> It's <laughs> a long email. <laughs> for those, for those got a lot to say. Yeah. Okay, Dallas, go for it, man. <laughs> for those RFI hosts that do use non-weapon proficiencies, do you allow players to trade off number of languages for their intelligence score to pay for extra weapon or non-weapon proficiencies? It feels munchkinish to me, but also makes sense. That's question one. You guys want to answer that before I go to question two? The answer mm-hmm. is no. Okay, please continue. <laughs> Will? No, no, definitely not. Okay, I wouldn't do it either. Question two. Do all the RFI hosts use weapon proficiencies as described in the player's handbook? I do, he says. Uh, yeah, I do. Yes. Nick? The answer is yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you, Casey Kasem. Thank you, Casey Kasem. Yes. Oh, <laughs> he says, all right, and I'll bite. Non-weapon proficiencies are an option... Is an optional option in second edition, just like in first edition. Case optional closed. Option? Yeah, it's an optional option, he says. Yeah. <laughs> and he underlined that, too. Case closed. None of this makes me think of second edition nonsense. Cheers, Dallas. Death and direct on the forums. So what do you guys think? Well, okay. My argument for non-weapon proficiencies? Okay. <laughs> Give me an example. Uh, Sailing. Okay. Does everybody know how to sail a boat? Yes. No. Oh. No. <laughs> That's why you have a non-weapon proficiency like for sailor. You know, they know how to sail and to use, to, you know, and you, you know, seamanship and what have you. And not everybody knows how to do that, especially if you're talking about like a quasi-medieval type environment that Advanced Dungeons and Dragons is. Quasi-evil? Quasi-evil. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But um, So, maybe you have a player uh, a player character who is knowledgeable about that sort of thing, so you can use a non-weapon proficiency skill to you know, to reflect that. So, that's just one example. I could go on and on and on. 
But <laughs> I think like, his whole uh, point was that it's not the whole how I was saying. I think he was pointing it towards me how I was saying. It reminds me of second edition. Right. I that was kind but of most of they are in first edition. Yes, they are. Blah, blah, blah. And they are optional. So not everybody has to use them. There, it's not a rule that you have to have. The right. game works just fine without using them. The whole world isn't going to come crashing around. No! Your shoulders ah. if you take them out or put them in. And that's probably one of the beauties of the game system. It's quite modular. Oh, Nick, I have a question then. Uh-oh. Okay. Oh, yes. Would you allow a dwarf to be a sailor or pick up that non-web efficiency? A dwarven sailor? No. <laughs> no. Hell no. Say, because in my game world, dwarves have an innate fear of open, wide open uh, uh, water-like spaces like lakes and oceans <laughs> and seas. No, I don't know. I'm, maybe it makes for interesting role-playing. Why not? And that's the key thing right there. That is the whole purpose of non-weapon proficiencies. Mm-hmm. You just said you hit the nail right on the head. Exactly. And that was what I was looking for right there. So you did answer my question. I so answered what? it, right? What do I get? What do I get? Five electron pieces. Wow. The electron pieces are piling up around here. <laughs> no, you get steel. No. <laughs> okay, we have another letter that comes in from Kirk. He's talking Captain about Kirk? no, not Captain Kirk. I'm I'm going to say it's Kirk. K I K I R K E. I'm going to oh. say it's Kirk, right? I apologize if I'm pronouncing it wrong. He writes in uh, talking about he made up an iPhone app for DMs. His email goes on to say, "My kids and I love your show. I tried to impress them with trivia about monsters and magic, items, rules, whatever before you mention it, and I do pretty well because we grew up doing the same stuff." I'm writing you today to tell you about an app I published on the iPhone. It's called the Old School DM. If you go on iTunes, you could find that. And uh, basically what you can do is you can put monsters in it, uh, roll up encounters, uh, keep track of the hit points of monsters. You can actually roll four monster attacks, keep track of the hit points as it goes down, and and get experience totals on it. So it's a really neat item if you're one of those DMs that likes using like technology with this game. Much like I do, you can walk around the table freely with your iPad or your iPhone and have the whole monster layout on you right there that you're attacking the players with, and you can see all the rolls. You don't have to be stuck behind. What? What's it called again? It is called the Old School DM. I'm going to find it right now. Okay. It's a great little app for the iPhone. It isn't available for the Android. Sorry about that, guys. He said he would, doesn't have the ability to make that, but it is for the iPhone. And he's just, everybody, take a look at it and uh, give him your feedback because it's really cool. And he's also got a forum on OSR Gaming we put up for him so he can do uh, bug testing and everything. So, oh, it's uh, not, it hasn't been uh, out for very long. No. Old school DM, and it's a uh, Baco 99. Yep, ninety nine cents right now. Dollar ninety nine. Oh, dollar ninety nine. I well worth it. I I've been playing around with it, and I I'm definitely using it when I'm playing the book Thursday. Yeah, That's it's cool. already got one five star review. They're saying it's fantastic. I think that was for May. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then that doesn't count. Oh, <laughs> nah, it's all I good. Think I'm gonna I mean... download this Mama Jama. It looks pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, see, I'm one of those uh, DMs. I don't allow no electronic devices at my table. That includes cell phones, laptops, 
calculator is eating dragon bones. Oh, uh, well, I guess you'll be playing without that pacemaker. <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> I, I don't allow it at my table either, but something like that I would allow because it helps the this game. Look, yeah, this looks pretty cool. I don't think this would just detract from the game at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have another. We have our last email from Raul. Actually, he's Angel Doctor on the forums. He says, "Good day and well met." Actually, the title of his email is "The Battle for Middle Earth is About to Begin." Eh? First, I admire your work on the show, and I have almost for a year now. Y'all have y'all. He must be from Texas. Y'all have inspired me to dust off the old game books and introduce the game to my kids, and thereby securing a new generation of interest in first edition gaming. Yay. 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 <laughs> A little late. I Gee, look- <laughs> Will, don't get too excited. Yeah, no, right? <laughs> I look forward to every issue and appreciate the fine work you have put into creating those most excellent podcasts. Keep them coming, and I shall keep listening. Finally. Most excellent. Yes, most excellent. He's watching Bill and Ted, too. <laughs> Finally, after almost 20 years of marriage to a non-gamer... And one might note an anti-gamer at times. My wonderful spouse has decided to participate as a player in a fantasy role-playing game with me as a dungeon master. Well, hold on. I just fell off the bed here. <laughs> really? I'm actually clapping. That's what that noise is. That's amazing. Yes. After much exposure to my geek influences and also to our child's interest in our own geek hobbies, she has relented. <laughs> There's one catch. Uh-oh. However... She prefers that we embark on a campaign in a low magic setting along the lines of Tokens, Lord of the Rings. Okay. I feel it's certain... Is a challenge? Yeah. I feel it's certainly a thing that we, that can be done in order to add her participation, but I'm wondering if you had any experience in such setting, or have run games set specifically in Middle-Earth using the AD&D rules of First Edition. Though I do not have an interest in inquiring ICE version... In the interest of saving time and money, I would prefer to make use of the current investment in AD materials to have. What tips might you have for, one, introducing your significant other to role-playing, and <laughs> two, how might I best use the first edition AD&D as the core system supporting a campaign in Middle-earth? For instance, what classes or races might you suggest that I use? What class or race be left unused? How might I best establish the atmosphere for a Middle-Earth campaign? What adventure ideas might be appropriate for such a setting? Many thanks for your consideration. Roll. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, as far as getting the spouse involved, hmm, one, you better start several weeks in advance and getting her worked up into even getting to the idea might be a cool thing to do. Because <laughs> that's what I tried to do. I even bought my wife her own set of really nifty dice out of semi-precious stones. Cool. And guess what? She loved it. Yeah, loved it. Still have not played yet. Oh. So, as <laughs> it worked. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I get her a bottle of wine, get her relaxed, and say, hey, let's play. I don't know. Depends. You know your, you know your spouse well enough. I guess it's like for, uh, I guess on an individual basis, really. I think I would have to uh, know why she didn't want to game 20 years earlier. You know, it's 20 years, you know, late, but there has to be something that... That's, he wore that's, her down. Yeah. <laughs> she oh, got sick of that. him asking. 
Well, um, I don't know. I've never really played the Middle Earth type campaign, but I would actually kind of go for uh, what do we call it? The Hyperion Age campaigns. They're low in magic, and I played in plenty yeah, of those. Yeah, but that's a different type of flavor, though. That's more sword and sandal kind of thing than versus Middle Earth, though. Yeah. Well, obviously you would have, well, let's start Middle-Earth with a token Middle-Earth. Obviously, we'd, instead of halflings, we'd have hobbits, which they couldn't just call. Just rename them. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, what they were originally called in the game anyway. So. Yeah. That's right. Um, if she wants low magic. That's rough. It's rough. I mean, you know, I own everything that was printed for ICE, and so uh, he's right. That stuff is uh, its not worth your time if, you, if you're not going to have the money to spend on it. And, yeah. I, I, you know, I played a lot of Middle-Earth back in the day. It's uh, and, and to convert it over into an AD&D setting, it, it wouldn't be that difficult because the majority of things are easily translatable. I mean, you have orcs, you have trolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they're the regenerating types, though, I don't think. No. Yeah, the trolls are different in, in, in right. Earth. You know, they turn to stone when sunlight hits them, and then the spiders. And I mean, there wasn't that really that many crazy monsters in there. So I mean, it, it, I don't know. It, you know what would be a really good guide to help out if he doesn't have it? Um, it's called the Atlas of Middle Earth. I forget who published it, but it has every creature, every land, like A through Z from. All, you know, the, all three Lord of the Rings books, The Hobbit, and The Cimmerillion, all compiled in huh. a nice alphabetized area. And there's listings of creatures and people and places in there. So I would highly recommend to use that. as It would be a fantastic reference if you're going to do, if you really want to go this, go this way. And I think some other creatures, because I remember reading through this book several times, it's on my shelf. Um, there's there's vampires, there's werewolves. Yes. Um, there's the kraken. Um, kraken. What else? Uh, wargs. Wargs. Uh, giant eagles. Goblins. Goblins. Uh, the urukai, which are really if really urukai are half orcs because they're part orc, part human. So. And there's giants. Giants, yeah. yep. The the ants. Oh, definitely them. Obviously them. Yeah. So there's quite a few creatures right there. And I'm sure you can throw in some other stuff from, from AD&D that, that would work yeah. in, a, in an environment like that. Like, you know, you have your various different spiders. Um, most of your giant-sized uh, animals would work fine, you know. Maybe oh, yes. They have yeah, those giant elephants. Animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the giant elephants, the, uh, the Malamooks, or I think they were called, or, or Oliphants. Oliphants, Oliphants, yes. Them. Yeah, they call them the Oliphants. So you can have Just those in there. Just basically take the creatures and tweak them. Yeah, really. And there's not a whole lot to it. But as far as making it low magic? Well, I was thinking about that. Restrict the magic to just the elves, first of all. Yeah. The Elven yeah. Society can only use magic, maybe restrict it even further by taking a lot of the spells out. I would right. you can even go one step further, no clerics or druids. Yeah. I wouldn't I I mean if you're speaking of Tolkien's works, he didn't get really into the theology of Middle Earth much at all. There is a theology behind it, 
Yeah. I think you have to read the Cimmerillion to understand it. But I, um, I might even... Are, as far as I can tell, there are no organized you know, churches or temples. What I might think and consider doing, and another friend of mine did this with another campaign. It wasn't a Middle-earth campaign, but what he did was he didn't have clerics or druids, but he had magic users or magicians, as he called them, in his game. And he uh-huh. just... He cut down the spells, and what he did was he threw some of the clerical spells over on the magic side, uh, the magic user side. So they would have heal and like the resurrects, but at higher levels. So yeah, was, you could do that. And he was, and his explanation was that it was part of the whole spell weave thing, and it wasn't based on religion. Okay, that makes sense. But also remember, non-weapon proficiencies. <laughs> you can have healing, first aid, which That's is used true. very commonly. That's and those true. right there are good enough to heal too as well. Right. Yeah, that you could, could be, you uh, could use that, but it really wouldn't heal in the middle of battle though. Not really. Not really. I would say I would say cut it down and throw it over to the uh the magic user. Yeah. Have them give but, give them like a basic heal spell. Right. But I would I highly recommend that Atlas of Middle Earth. If I mm-hmm. think it's still in print. If not, I'm sure you can find a copy somewhere. So Okay. Well, uh, rfistaff at gmail.com is the email address if you'd like to send in some sage advice. 570-865-4210 is the hotline. Hotline. (laughs) Where Nick is standing by. No, we got goblins standing by. Or me, apparently, because I answer the phone when people try to call in. (laughs) Because I'm sitting at the computer doing work, and I see, ooh, phone call. I hit answer. So, and people go, ah, and I hang up the phone. (laughs) Anyway, let's head into some table manners with our theme for tonight, which Nick will explain in a few moments. Yeah, I remember back in the day, a fella knew how to judge a fireball on the fly and how far the cleric could push the undead he turned. I tell you, with all these min-maxers and munchkins, metagame and power game, there's something missing that I'm here to learn you. Now sit down and crack your book while I commence to teach you some... Table Manners. Okay, um, Table Manners this evening, and we're going to be talking about how to run a tournament. And specifically, what we're going to be talking about is in the... I guess it's a module. It's module C6. Mm -hmm. It's the official RPGA tournament handbook. That was put out by TSR and the RPGA back in, I think, like, 86 or 87. Yeah, 87. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I've never had this before, and I was looking through it, and it's got some pretty good stuff in here. Some of it's dated, obviously, but I think there's some good advice here. It was actually and, uh, reviewed and rated, uh, I forget who the, the author was, that it said it was one of the best advice for running a tournament game here in the back of the book. Yeah, And a lot of is. people had asked questions, how do I run a tournament game or convention? This is basically a convention game, so I figured it might be a good yeah, idea and to I've, cover it. I've had some experience doing that myself. Hmm? Same so here. I've, I've been a, a DM in a tournament, and I've also ran a, a, a tournament. And I think, you know, there are some basic guidelines here in this, in this uh, not just module, but this packet of information 
through the RPGA back then that's, uh, I think, worth uh, having at your side if you're going to do an AD&D tournament. Or for uh, broader than that, anybody out there who's doing some old-school gaming like uh, uh, Osric or uh, Labyrinth Lord, I think there's some really good advice here. If you're going to be doing tournaments at any small or large conventions or you know maybe doing something small at the uh, rec center or at the hobby store so let's talk about how to run a tournament so how it's organized here is uh some they talk about some considerations for starting your tournament and there's some really good questions that they put out to the person who wants to organize a tournament basically things you need to ask yourself if you haven't done them already one how many teams should be in the competition? Now, they recommend no more than six six-person teams. If you decide to run a two-round elimination event, advance only the top three players from each team so you have only half the number of teams participating in the second round. Well, there's also another way you can do that, too. I mean, you can also do the point system to where the team stays together and only half the teams advance i don't like the idea of splitting the uh the groups up like that right you know i i I think if the teams are working together they're going to stay together at least now nowadays i think back then people just kind of showed up there wasn't really an organized group of people who went into a tournament no it's not like today yeah not like today where you actually have a lot more like named groups you know like like ours the burning river cell swords (laughs) <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, that's the name of our named after the famous 1965 Cuyahoga River fire up here outside of Cleveland. <laughs> um, so that's the first question: is how many teams should co- competition? So I think, um, yeah, six six person teams. That's a pretty good manageable number. Also, which kind of leads into the question too: how many judges do you need, and where can you find them? Well, obviously, if you're going to have six six-person teams, you're going to need six judges. So uh, you're going to have to have judges. And where can you find them? Well, then they talked about, you know, gaming clubs, hobby stores. Also, nowadays, you can look on the Internet so you can find some people. Um, And there's local groups that advertise on the Internet. Hopefully, they can help you out. Uh, Third question is, how how much play time do you want? Now, they say three and a half to four hours, and that's generally the – if you're going to be at a, an actual convention, that's generally the time you're allotted any way. Any time slot is going to be anywhere between three and a half to four hours. So you're kind of restricted to that as it is if you're going to an actual con. Now, if you're not, if you're kind of just organizing a tournament someplace else, like at the uh, local game store or – you know, at a at a, a community center or whatever, you can maybe stretch it out to five, six hours. Who knows? But three and a half to four hours is good. And so, but always there's a little leeway to that. Um, where the tournament is held, where could well, <laughs> I think we already talked about that a little bit. You know, yeah. Local, so, you know, uh, community centers, libraries, local game clubs, whatever. Gen and Con. if you're gonna be at, yeah. You know, and, and the I don't know in your basement. Uh, <laughs> you want to, uh, but uh, at the street corner, you know, wherever. <laughs> uh, 
obviously you're going to have to have uh, work it out with whoever owns the facility if need to and make sure it's okay. And um, conventions might be the exception. They already have a facility that they're using. It's just a matter of getting the space. So uh, the fifth question, how to advertise your tournament. You can do flyers. Uh, uh, you can post them at, as long as you have permission in public areas around your around your community. Also, obviously, nowadays you have the internet. Maybe you have a blog. You know, you put, go out there on Twitter, Facebook, gaming stores, ne- game stores. If you have some around, social networking now compared to back it was twenty some odd years ago, a lot easier to get the word out. I think so. There's a lot more tools nowadays to get the word out. But don't forget your traditional areas, you know, the local, you know, schools, you know, ask permission from the school, uh, supervisor, principal, whatever. It's like, hey, I'm organizing a tournament. Can I post this up on your post-it board or whatever? So, and don't forget, a lot of schools still have gaming clubs in them. Uh, I know my local high school, they, they used to, it's been on hiatus for a year, but they're going to start it up again. So always check with the junior highs and high schools, and maybe you can work something together with those gaming clubs. You never know. So that's some of the uh, stuff about, um, you know, some considerations before starting. Also, um, make sure you have plenty of copies of the adventure that you give to your uh, – give to the uh, judges beforehand at least two weeks prior <laughs> When you're organizing your tournament, um, <laughs> a good idea. One of the thing, yeah, I'm laughing at that because <laughs> there have been tournaments I participated in where the DM is reading it literally minutes before the tournament starts. Oh, geez. Wow, that is bad. Very bad. That's, that's totally bad. lame. Unfortunately, that's stuff that's out of your control. If you're a tournament. Uh, coordinator, organizer, Grand Poobah, <laughs> you have to really trust in your judges, DMs, that they are, you know, they've read through the adventure and they understand it. Also, and this is something that's in here, and we, I think, well, maybe where they lifted it from is before each round of your tournament, however many rounds it is, have a certain amount of time to have a talk with all your DMs that they have any questions about the adventure. Maybe there's some things in a particular area that they're not clear about, or they think there might be some rule issue that might be, uh, that might need to be resolved. So everybody could be on the same page with that. So if there's a ruling that has to be made, maybe they foresee something in the future that might happen. Then they'll say, okay, the ruling when this happens is this. So everybody's going to be consistent. So, that's some of the things about being a judge. Um, yeah, judges, if you're going to be a judge in a tournament, yeah, be punctual. Be well-read on that adventure. <laughs> also, allow time for uh, the players to 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes to get themselves organized and ready because you're going to do basically a basic read through what the adventure is about and you should allow them 
and generally it's like 15 minutes. And this is what's recommended in, in this particular book here to, uh, you know, whatever spells you might need, um, uh, whatever extra special equipment, you know, you got to have that obligatory 10 foot pole, <laughs> the 50 foot of rope. Because, <laughs> you know, when the tournament starts, if it's not in your character sheet, guess what? Too bad. You don't have it. <laughs> That's how we played it. That's how America does it. It's worked pretty good so far. Uh, <laughs> so the, the question I have, though, since you brought that up and everything, now I've hosted many, many conventions and um, mm-hmm. a lot of D&D tournaments. God forbid, I can't even give you the numbers I've done over the last 30 years or so. I know that in the majority of the uh, conventions that I host, before the players sit down, yeah. character sheets are upside down. They have yes. no idea. See, a you lot of that? people that's don't funny. play that. That's yeah, funny see, you mentioned that, Will, because I remember way back in 1980, <laughs> when I went to my first game convention, I participated in a local AD&D tournament. And they played it to where everybody showed up. And there were, I can't remember how many tables. There was at least six tables. Might have been more. Might have been about eight. But it was anywhere between six to eight tables. And all the character sheets and all the tables were face down. Yes. And you had no idea what you were playing. I think I was maybe 12 years old. So I was I was a little wet behind the ears. <laughs> and I sat down. I flipped over that sheet. And guess I was playing a paladin. <laughs> no, I was playing a paladin. Talk about hard time for role playing, but you know what? I I won a prize. Ooh, I won a Dragon Riders See? a Pern board game. Wow, that's nice. Which I never understood how to play. But <laughs> the point is, yes, all the sheets were turned upside down. Now it doesn't say that here in the. Uh, the organizing a tournament, how to run the tournament, but it must have been one of those unwritten things they've done. Well, you see, the, this is the big difference in tournaments that are normally run at conventions and, and other places that you mentioned. That remember, this uh, C6 is an RPGA tournament. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you'll see as I converse, when I talk about my portion and how scoring is done, you're going to see me jump between how it was done in C6, which is an RPGA tournament, compared to how other tournaments have been run. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. for like I said, I'll cover that when we get to scoring, but th- that's a very critical thing. And I did want to mention one other thing on how they form up the groups. Yeah. In most cases, the majority of the conventions that I've been to, it was a draw a number and you go to this table. And there's a reason they do that. That's to keep the uh, groups from being stacked. Right. Against your most experienced places versus uh, experienced players versus your newbie players. Right. So everyone has the opportunity to, you know, do well at the convention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of levels the playing field. Or you might have it to where, like we were saying, there might be named groups out there, you know? That- yes. And that's fine, too. If that's how you want to run your tournament, that's cool as well. Or you might want to do it where it's all split up and you draw lots. That's fun, too. However you want to do it as far as how you're going to – how the players are, I guess, organized and run. So what do you think, Vince, uh, as far as this section? I think – in my opinion, I think this is a really good basic one-page guideline to go by. 
if you want to organize a tournament of of not just A and D A D and D, but almost any game. I think it's perfect. I I think it needs to be done. I'm surprised that with the OSR gaming group that was selling books at uh, Gen Con, they didn't think about maybe doing some type of tournament to help promote the books or yeah or uh, tr- the the Gary Gygax Memorial book that they had they were selling. Uh, well, they weren't selling; they were giving away with donations. If they maybe would have just given that as a prize, but I think grabbing this, and if you want to stay old school, not using RPG RPGA as a name, but just whatever, making up whatever fantasy you want name. I think mm-hmm. it's perfect. It's it's good rules for back then, and like you said, they really weren't organized as much back then, right? So it's perfect. I mean, the RPGA now is very organized now, and. Yes. It's easy to get a card to go into the RPGA. I've I've had one for years. Yeah, I have a card when I remember I bought my silver anniversary box set. They you got a free <laughs> RPGA membership with it. That's right. I had the old one when they had the two different. They had the DCI and the RPGA cards because I did a lot of the card game playings. Wow, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Oh <laughs> I, my god! I used to play in a lot of I. I tried magic for a while because I thought it was kind of cool, but then I got, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then my, my nephew got me into playing with him, uh, Pokemon, Nick, that you hate. <laughs> so I, I played. hate Pokemon. I'm just surprised at how much, <laughs> how much has been lifted from, from AD&D <laughs> in that. <laughs> I'm telling you that you can go to their site and pick out the monsters and just take these really cool abilities that they have and translate it and make sure. any AD&D monster. I could probably sit there uh, with a little help, of course, and make up a whole monster book to use in my game. Probably good. (laughs) I mean, you couldn't use the pictures, obviously, because it's copyrighted, but get an artist and sit there and do it. You guys can make your own book. Jeez. So that's it. I guess uh, we'll just leave it up to our, our listeners and let us know what you think if you've you know, run a tournament or are thinking of running a tournament, you know, let us know at RFISTAFF at gmail.com. See, I remembered it. It's not at dot com. It's just gmail.com. <laughs> I did want to say one thing, though, just oh, to add on to, yeah. to that there, Nick, is um, on the number of participants. Now, yeah. you know, you have to you take a guess. Now, what happens at most of the conventions that I hosted, I mean, six is a large number. To me, that's a large number. Normally, when the adventure is designed, it's designed for four players, five players, and six players. And then we have to look at how many have signed up, how many have actually paid. If it is a paid tournament to cover the prizes, if there are any prize support that might be free or have to be paid for. But they take that also into consideration. I mean, you know, I mean, you can still run a simple tournament with a fighter, you know, a rogue. A thief and a magic user, or whatever you know, or a fighter, thief, cleric, and a magic user. Forgive me there, and uh, and and just work from there on, depending on the number of people that sign up. So if you only have ten people sign up, well, that doesn't make too good for a tournament. Or if you have twelve people come, you know. Yeah, I think one might be a good idea. Maybe since uh, I know I'm going to Gen Con next year, I'm pretty sure you are too, Will. Yes, I am. Uh, Nick, you were thinking about going. Yeah, I'm gonna try. Maybe we should try to run some type of tournament there just to show people it can be done. Oh, I have no problem with that and everything. The thing is, though, we need more judges, more DMs, depending on, you know, of course, how many people sign up. If you have 50 people sign up, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Well, that's why you have a limit. 
to uh And the, the you know the prize could be it could be have dinner with Nick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> why don't we just move uh, right along to uh, game mechanics there, shall we? All right. Oh, man, what the heck is that? And aside, you fool, I have a spell that will work here. What do you mean I can't hit with that? Oh, right, fine, show it to me in the book. Welcome. Game Mechanics. Okay, this next segment is going to cover game mechanics, scoring at a tournament. Uh, in this particular case, we're talking about C6, which is the RPGA tournament uh, module that tells people how to score an RPGA tournament. Uh, the uh, scoring system can be kind of convoluted, so someone that's experienced will really have no problems with this. But if this is a, a new person trying to run a, a convention, they really have to understand how scoring is done. Depends on the number of people that's going to be there, uh, how many GMs are going to be there. And then, of course, you have to meet with everybody and explain the scoring system so that everyone is on the same sheet of music. Basically, at any RPGA tournament, or for most D&D tournaments that I've attended over the last 30 years, awards are usually given for first, second, and third place. Uh, in the last five, six years of the conventions that I've hosted, I normally add a fourth place just to you know, put out some more prize support, you know, build up some interest. Uh, each playing group will choose an individual winner overall, and there's also a competition for best judge overall. And the judge, of course, is the DM. So when we say judge, I'm referring to the DM. Mm -hmm. Now, basically what happens at a uh, RPGA tournament, once that all the people are there and everything, each player, uh, before they sit at the table, or they can be done sitting at the table, each player will be given a summary sheet. The uh, summary sheet uh, must be kept secret from all players so as not to place undue influence on other players. So when you start to score on other players on their ability, their playability, uh, how much knowledge they know of the rules, or when you are scoring on the judge and everything, you want to keep your results secret from everybody else so people are not looking over your shoulder saying like, oh, he gave the DM a four. Maybe I'll give him a two, whatever the case may be. So uh, scoring is completely anonymous you know, to everybody, so that it makes out pretty much for a, a uh, an event that is free of any undue influence. Uh, upon completion of the tournament, uh, the summary sheets will be collected and given to the tournament coordinator for scoring and determination of winners. Basic in this case here, you probably want to have one person who will not be a judge, who will not be a player, and his or her primary goal there is to collect these sheets and, and tally up all the scores. You need to have one person dedicated to that goal so that there is no doubt that, that whatever results come out, they were not tainted by any, you know, undue influences by other players or GMs. Uh, the summary sheet, very simple. Uh, it's a very simple sheet that covers unit identification, adventure comments, judge and player evaluation. Uh, there's a player review, and from there on, there's a, like an overall player. And how that goes from there on is it's just basically the sheet starts off with who or you are as the player, uh, your real name, RPGA number, character name, convention name, scenario, and round. 
From there on, it goes into adventure comments. And the adventure comments are for those players who are actually playing in the adventure. And it covers things like, did the player enjoy the adventure? What did they like about it? What did they least like about it? And comments for improvement. That's very important information for the coordinator of this event so that when next year comes around, they will provide an adventure that will fit these people's, you know, uh, their idea of, of a good adventure. Provided they show up. Say again? Provided they show up again. That is, provided they show up again, because I've seen some some tournaments, you know, where the adventure was such poorly written, it was just a terrible adventure that they just refused to come back next year. So it's very important that people that participate in these events to just say it how it is, don't sugarcoat it, but give them the opportunity next year to do it, because you never know. Someone else might decide to, you know, coordinate that event, so the adventure might be, you know, very different. And that's also, a very important... I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Nick. I, I Just a little... Uh addendum to that the adventure if you can please 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 play test the adventure before you put it out there to be the <laughs> tournament you just that is to the punch. so critical yeah. to do yes and you just beat me to the punch because that was my next note whoever is going to provide this adventure now understand that this adventure with the rpga it's it's, it's published by the rpga so it's not like i come there with my particular adventure that i wrote up in one night and do that they're going to have their specific written adventures but in this case yes always play test the module i mean always play test that is so important everything because a poorly written module spells doom to a tournament yeah Absolutely. Definitely. And it's just, it's just, it's just horrible, horrible, horrible. Now, um, uh, the other portions of the summary sheet, the judge and player evaluation. This is where the players get the opportunity to judge the, uh, well, that's funny, to get the opportunity to judge the judge or judge the DM. <laughs> and, and that's very important, everything. Uh, on a scale throughout the entire summary sheet, the scale is going to be one to five. One, they describe as being merely adequate. I'm thinking like a one, merely adequate. How about it just sucks? I mean, that's basically what I would look, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's a one, you know, three being average and five being outstanding. And of course, two and, and uh, four being in between those. So, uh, and uh, just a number of things there, the, the categories like uh, who knows the rules the best, who showed the most innovation, who showed the best strategic play, uh, who showed the best leadership. So if you played a paladin there, Nick, you should got a five in that, right? Or did you get a one? You know, I don't remember how it was all scored, quite honestly. Yeah, that's it funny. It was such a long time ago. <laughs> I pretty much remember most of the stuff and everything. But, yeah, you know, um, you know, who did the best role plan and who showed the best team support. So, you know, this is a good convention. This, this sheet is, is really explanatory, and, and, you know, players really get into it. Yeah, I think because when I went there, it was like 1983, so I don't even think they had a sheet like this for the tournament. And if they did, it was probably even more simple. But I don't even remember how they scored it. You know, uh, when I was, when I DM'd my first D&D tournament, and that was back in 1979. Wow. I was just turning nine. 10 years old. Yeah, 1979. I remember that. That was at a community center in Fort Rucker, Alabama. And I specifically remember when we did the module, it was a real simple thing. It was a real simple thing. And, uh, but it was, it was designed basically for four players for each group, uh, a four hour time, uh, yep. uh, limit, just exactly as you said before, Nick. 
And uh, the scoring sheet was very simple, really similar to what we're talking about today for the RPGA tournament summary sheet. Basically, that's what I think it was. In fact, I think it might have been just like a little slip of paper and it had the, you know, one through five on that. Right. You know, you know, poor, fair, good, great, super. It's like, you know, how and it maybe had just a few questions and you rated it. And that was right. It. Maybe you had your name and your character's name. The only thing I really remember out of the tournament is we had this. I remember we were on the sea and there was we were being attacked by some like sea dragon kind of thing. And we had some some orb or something like that. And we had some black orb. And I gave the suggestion giving the black orb to the to the sea dragon. And it gave us some information and stuff. And apparently that was the right thing to do. Yes. No, that's, that's the only good. thing I remember on that whole tournament. <laughs> oh, I can remember things like you wouldn't believe. But yeah, the players. Now, other tournaments, yeah, I remember some things that, you know, <laughs> some good, yeah. some not so good. Yeah, it's amazing. That's that's one of the you know the disadvantages of you know mixing up the the the, the numbers and everything. Says well, these four will be playing with these four, or the, uh, this table. This four will play at this table. And you're saying like, I never met these people before and everything. Well, guess what? That's where the innovation comes in because that's part of the scoring on the player summary sheet for the RPGA tournament is innovation. You know who showed the best team support? Yeah, you don't know this guy, but you know or this person here, and you think like, well, I, I got to do good, you know. But no, I think it's interesting to do it like that instead of, you know, stacking the groups with a, a group of people that's very experienced. You all know how to play one another. Cool. I think the best part is that, like, the character sheet's upside down and you play a character that you never played before in your entire life. Yeah, that was – that's pretty cool. I, <laughs> I think if I'm going to do another tournament, I think I would run it just like that. All the character sheets upside down and guess what? Yeah. That's what you get. When I did mine... I, well, I would even maybe say if they maybe wanted to do a trade, maybe people could trade if they wanted to, but... I when I know. did mine at uh, Gen Con, I had all the papers down, and I basically would have, starting from my left, I gave the paperwork to the person on my left. I said, here, grab a character and hand it to your left. Yes. Uh, they just took the one on top, and then blah, 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 blah. That's it. And How did it work out? It worked out fine. Everybody played the characters. They seemed like they had fun. Uh, actually, three of the players actually wanted to keep the character because uh, they had such a good time, I guess. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's great. I think that's awesome. It's too bad they didn't ask for your, ask for your autograph. No, I'm autograph. <laughs> yeah, now I'm a star. Yeah. No, I actually hand-wrote all the sheets on a, on a lined paper from wow. scratch, so I guess maybe that's why they wanted to keep it because they thought it was kind of cool that I hand-wrote everything. You took the time to do that. Well, no, yeah, I wanted it to yeah. feel was I was it was classic D and D uh, Mulvey Cook, so I wanted. Oh to, well, yeah, you got to do it on the graph paper, right? No, it was line notebook paper. <laughs> oh, okay, I wanted it to feel as old school as possible while playing the game. Well, you should have done it on construction paper then. Yeah, well, yeah. Construction yeah. paper, cut out those letters from magazines and use paste. I'm not giving a threatening letter to someone. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but no, that basically the player summary, you know, is basically that. Now the judges summary is another sheet that would be given to the players, and it's basically in the same format now, in the same format. Uh, however, there's some questions that you have to answer as a judge. You know, like did your team complete the adventure? If not, how far did they get? And then rank your team's performance in the following categories. And again, cooperation and teamwork. 
overall performance towards stated goal, uh, innovative thinking, problem solving, role playing ability, and so on. So I see a lot of you know fun in just turning character sheets over and telling each player sit at your you know assigned or whatever chair you want to sit in and pick your character and then deal with the you know the fallout afterwards. So basically, that's how the scoring is done. Now, I was not, uh, we didn't do too many uh, multiple rounds, but the RPGA does allow for a multiple round advancement. It depends on the number of players. So, and then again, it's based on points. And, and that's why they allow for the, uh, the best overall performances so that if, if there are some great players in the very bottom group, they can fill in at some of the, the, the other groups that, you know, they didn't do well with their players. And I believe oh. that's why they have that. Yes. And when yes. talking about, um, if we're talking about a multi-round event, it's, and the ones I participate in, their multi-round is generally three rounds. It's, it's generally split up between the days of the convention. You have right. one round one day, the next round the next day, and the final round the next day. Usually do do all two or three right. rounds in the same day because then you know people are just going to get tired. They're gonna get tired exactly, and, and that's why I made sure we knew that this is for the RP, RPGA tournament uh, rules when they do their tournaments. And this 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 method is also almost used with the current Pathfinder, you know, uh, Living Pathfinder Society and so on, and yeah. with the Living Greyhawk Society. It's the same way with their tournaments as far as their rounds and round numbers and everything. You know, they fill out the sheets afterwards, and then everything is submitted through the RPGA or whatever association there to get their rewards and so on from there on. Ah, okay. The Pathfinder picked it up. Hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, and, and that's a good thing that you all mentioned that because on, on these uh, play-tested modules, the uh, modules can be bought online via Pathfinder, but I find their modules are much more tougher. They are very much, I mean, they, they're, they're, they're tough. Their tournament modules are very tough. Good, they should be. And uh, but most, yeah, but most of the tournament modules that I play, most in, tournaments should be tough. Yeah, they really are tough. I like it, you know, more with the puzzle solving. That's why I like these kind of modules in these tournaments with their scoring, because you know, uh, I, like I said, when I played in that one term, I remember one time we needed a red stone to get through a door, and uh, the guy found a bottle with a genie in there. So I'm certain it was a genie or a Jan or something. And the guy specifically stated, make me a red stone. Well, Oops. the guy disappeared and he was a red stone. And I said, well, and, and the guy says, hey, you're dead. Well, the ju- judge told him, you're dead. So you'll have to, you know, either go away or you can sit, sit here quietly and watch the rest of the people play. <laughs> so it, was good for me. it was good for me because I picked up the red stone, opened the door, went through the door, and guess what? The adventure was over. So I was pretty happy. So what do you guys think uh, overall for this? Do you think do you think it actually worked when they used it, or is it kind of an archaic system? Well, I think it still works. It's simple. It's elegant. I mean, why not use it? I mean, we use a similar thing for Hackmaster tournament uh, scoring. I mean, I think this is uh, the scoring system is something not only could be useful for you know an AD and D slash D and D tournament, but you could port it over to any tournament system really and use it. I mean, it's all simple and right there. So, um, yeah, why not use it? Cool. I have to agree. I have to agree with Nick. I mean, this is a very simple system. This can be applied to any type of game. I mean, I mean, for what it's worth, it can be applied even to certain board games, to be honest with you. So, I, yes, I'm impressed with the, how they did the system. It's very simple. It's just uh, you just have to know the rules. It's just, just a certain set of rules right. that you can follow. 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting set of rules, and I thought people would be interested in hearing about how they did it back in the day, especially the uh, younger crowd that wasn't alive or around when we were playing games. So just give them a little tidbit of the past. You know, only another thing I have to mention everything, if they want to, they can always compare the tournament rules with uh, any of the uh, tournament modules they released back in the day. You know, if you remember, uh, like, yeah. uh, C1, Hidden Shrine of Tomokin. Yeah, the yeah, C1, the- yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, there's a sheet there dedicated total to tournament scoring. It's 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 pretty awesome and everything. If you just take a look yeah. at how they did it, you can see some of the comparable material that they used to do the tournaments. You know what's even more interesting? S1 Tomb of Horrors was a tournament module. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine being a player in that tournament? Yeah. You open the door, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we actually open had... Open the box, you're dead. <laughs> Walk through the green hole or the black hole you're in the dead. wall. Yeah, you're dead. You're you know, dead. <laughs> we actually green came up. Face dead. <laughs> we actually came up with our own Tomb of Horrors a while, a while back when we were at a comic book store. Me and uh, my friend Chris, when we got tired of this group that got too large, I've spoken about them before. It was the one group when there was a big major snowstorm and two of the Munchkins showed up with the rest of the group and they decided to hand out all the magical items that I had given the week before. And they went in the back of the book and they started giving out wondrous items and everything to people. <laughs> yeah, they they screwed up the campaign big time. So my friend Chris and I, who were co DMs in this whole this whole big nine person group, decided to write up the ultimate death horror adventure. We called it, <laughs> and it involved uh, Strahd coming out of Ravenloft, and that was the whole plan. He was going to come out and destroy the world, and they had to prevent it. And let me guess, it didn't turn out very well. No, they all wound up dying. <laughs> cool. TPK. That's even better. It Hopefully was, turn them all into vampires and everything. Nostrad got out, and they all wound up dying because they were stupid, like, like dumb. There was, like, one trap that he set was, there was this, you walk into this room, and the wind is blowing so strong, you can barely move. But in the center of the room, there is a sword with a golden handle and a jewel. I still remember this, and it's shining brightly, and it's radiating magic. And obviously they were going to go for this. (laughs) Every one of them, I mean, like three in a row, ran up to it as much as they did. All the strength checks and everything, ran it, touched it, failed the saving throw, and disintegrated. (laughs) You would think after the first two times you wouldn't do it. No, they were just like, no, I'll go try it now. Like moths to the flame. Yeah, I was just like, how stupid could you be? Like lemmings off a cliff. (laughs) Anyway. Exactly. Use it or not, we'd like to hear your experiences uh, if you want to try using it. Uh, and the C module line for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is the tournament modules, in case somebody was wondering about that. Head of the creature feature next. That is not dead, which can And with strange ears, even death may die. I welcome the unwary. The Creature Feature Theater. Okay, for Creature Feature this week, everyone, uh, we're going to be talking about, I guess it would be, it's also in the uh, tournament module that we're talking about, is uh, the Face Spider. And um, they're found in this particular adventure, but they're also in the Monster Manual. Yes. Uh, page 90. And I. this is like one of the if you want to talk about quintessential D&D, AD&D monsters, you got to put the phase spider in that category. 
Oh, yeah? At least in my opinion. <laughs> it's just one of those, when you think D&D, yeah, you got your gelatinous cube, you got your cattle bleepus, you got your beholder. Face Spider kind of falls into that, at least I think. So the description in the player's handbook, it's although these monsters appear to be nothing more than very great spiders, <laughs> they are something quite beyond this. When attacking or being attacked, the phase spider is able to shift out of phase with its surroundings, bringing itself back only when it's ready to deliver its poisonous bite. And victims must save at minus two on their poison saving throw. Yes. When Yeah, when out of phase, they're impervious to nearly all forms of attack, although a phase door spell will cause one to remain in phase for seven melee rounds. Oil of etherealness and armor of etherealness also put their wares into the same phase as the manor when it shifts out of phase. Their webs are equal to those of giant spiders. Phase spiders will seek to evade encounters which are un- unfavorable. Now, one of these, there's only one phase spider in the adventure, but you only need one because... If you miss your save, it's the typical Gygax save or die. (laughs) (laughs) You get bit by this thing, make your poison save at minus two. If you don't make it, you're dead. That's all you need. (laughs) Need more? Why not? But I love this monster because, um, you know, you can have one of four appearing. It's got quite a few hit dice. It's got low intelligence, so it's quite cunning. It's not not a dumb monster. No. And uh, it's I the, uh, love this, these things. You bite, phase out, phase in, bite, phase out. It's kind of like the it's kind of like the Klingon spider or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they don't have their own theme music, Nick. Now stop it. But they should. All right. They man. should. They should have their own theme music. They should. <laughs> but um, they are nasty, and if. And I don't think these are very easy monster to fight because of their phasing ability. Now, kind of thinking about this, you know, thinking about this phase fighter, how in the in its description, how it says the oil of etherealness and armor of etherealness will put the the bearer of those when you wear them in phase with the phase fighter when it's out of phase. So that kind of makes me wonder. I guess. Like face spider venom or face spider blood or some component of a face spider is used in making those particular magic items. Certainly, Possibly. could be a could be kind of a quest thing, you know, for a low level party. Maybe go out there with you know the magic user says I need like oh fifteen face spider gallbladders to make my oil of his Help me. Just throwing that out there. Is that for his, like, I don't know, his morning breakfast? Jeez. I'm making oil of etherealness. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whippersnappers. <laughs> but, you know, it's something that you brought up that the face spider is extremely dangerous. And here's a prime example of a tournament module using a monster against players who have no possible, well, I, I can't say no possible way of killing it. They do have a chance, but highly unli- unlikely. If you notice in the adventure, the six characters that they use and their current magical items and all that, they, I don't think they're a high enough level to cast Phase Door. I don't know what level that spell is at the time right on top of my head. What, what level is that spell, Phase Door? Oh, uh, Phase Door? Right. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head either, sorry. 
but uh, I'm just letting you know that they don't have any oil of ethereal or any armor of ethereal or anything to fight this creature at its own terms. You see what I'm saying? And this is how a creature like this can really make an RPGA tournament a TPK. Yes. TPK. <laughs> that was a debated uh, word on the forums today. The only thing I, I uh, have uh, issue with in the, um, in the adventure with the face spider, if you kill this thing, there you have like two potions, a scroll, a bag of devouring, and like over 2,000 gold pieces for killing <laughs> one face spider. I don't think so. There should be a whole bloody nest of them for that much loot. <laughs> That's just me. You know, there should be maximum amount of four right there. If you're getting a potion of extra healing, a potion of longevity, and a magic user scroll with web knock and push and a bag of devouring and 2,800 gold pieces, please. Oh, well, That's a lot of loot for killing one phase fighter. Well, you're the DM. Just do whatever you want. Yes, I would have four of those phase fighters. Have five. <laughs> Nick, why don't you make it six? Why not? T- and when you TPK. kill them, they explode. <laughs> explode. They do 1d10 damage. Or like when, when I when I created the, the uh, monster in my uh, Book of Sorrows campaign, the, which were dubbed the Pumpkin-Headed People, what happened when you, when you, we killed the King of Pumpkins, or what did they call it? The Great Pumpkin was the leader. He exploded and blasted everybody within a radius and did 1d10 points of damage. And nobody loves the smell of pumpkin when you open it up, not really. No, they killed the pumpkin leader really quick, too. And the smell of pumpkin? Oh. <laughs> So how can we change this uh, this spider around? To just leave him alone, you think? I th- well, I think with the loot, you need to have he needs to have some friends. Well, other than giving him friends, <laughs> okay, make him fly. Flying phase spiders? Why not? Now nah, I would maybe make leaping phase spiders. Exploding, exploding leaping phase spiders. Yes, I said they blow up when you kill them. <laughs> That's a tough phase spider. All right, so Nick's adventure, everyone will be dead within five minutes. Yay! I mean, no. It's got to be a challenge. Will, what would you do to this? Oh, no, I'd leave the spider alone with its phase ability, you know, its intelligence. I mean, it's minus two poison. I mean, it's it's a tough spider. It's a tough yeah, spider. I was I think just kidding about spiders. the other stuff. In, oh, yeah, the, we know. In the adventure as it is, you know, being an AD&D, yeah, this is perfect. You know, would be cool if they phase in and out and blast fire. Ooh, okay, that too. I like. Okay, I like. <laughs> like That'd be a phase dragon then, or just maybe like a one d four like spout of fire. Nothing really big, just enough to annoy the characters. Here's something I just noticed. What in the adventure under the uh, characteristics of the uh, monsters, Thacko. Mm-hmm. Don't say that. But it's right there. Well, remember this was this was built on the end of one e, so yeah, eighty seven. That's yes. true. They were already concocting second edition at this point, so concocting <laughs> the edition that shall not be acknowledged. There we go. So, face spiders, yeah, face spiders. Take that, Zacho's hammer. <laughs> I'm sure full on game will be calling in real shortly with another way to rip us apart again. It's okay. It's all in jest, guys. Yeah. So let's head into Dragon's Horde. As the secret portal yields to your efforts, you 
Forest and amazed at a vision from the most fevered dreams of avarice. Before you lies the Dragon's Horde. Yes, today we're going to cover Dragon's Horde and a specific item that is covered in the RPGA Tournament Module C6. Uh, the item in question was the Crystal of Light. And I believe crystal the question... Crystal of Light! Yeah, the Crystal of Light. Not to be confused with the stuff you put in water. Oh, crystal, because <laughs> I believe in me. <laughs> <laughs> you can't flavor your drink with this uh, magical item. Yeah, it's wait, awesome, yeah. Know, wait, let's talk about it, but maybe we can use it in that way. Yeah. Just, go, go ahead, Will. Continue. I have an idea. Okay. <laughs> Sit on it for now. Go ahead. I will. <laughs> yes, the Crystal of Light is a um, one of the... Well, I wouldn't call it a magical item. It definitely is more aligned an artifact because of its power inside the module and everything. Um, I think one of the questions that came up, is this just an item or just a plot hook? Well, interesting enough, you know, I have the Encyclopedia uh, Book of Treasures, you know, those four leather-bound books or whatever they're made of and everything, and the Crystal of Light is not within, you know, those four books. So I think it's, this is just a artifact specific for this RPGA it's tournament It's a MacGuffin, module. basically. It, it's, a, it's a basic plot hook. The, the Crystal yes. does completely nothing. It's said to do something. But it does completely nothing. It obviously radiates light. But I think if you were going to make a, just because I'm funny that way, <laughs> if you can use the crystal to purify water. Yeah. And it right. can make any water into a particular, like either juice or drink of some type. Oh, yeah, something beneficial. Because <laughs> it's had the to crystal go there, Nick? of light. You <laughs> had to go there, Nick? I said it wasn't crystal light. I but, went there, and I think it could work. Maybe. I don't know. Well, <laughs> He's about, it could be like that. about ready to kill me. Yeah. Well, I don't know if this would be an uh, artifact, but... Reading. I, I think it's an artifact because of its powers. I mean, it has the power to dispel darkness of any sort within 120 feet of the crystal command yes. word. Uh, no darkness save that created by deities or by the other artifact of relics can stand against the light of the crystal. So it definitely is a very bright. Yes. yes. It was uh, actually, I think the whole plot of this thing was it had to, the players are supposed to find this because of the priest that wanted to summon uh, one of oh, the gods. Wait, yeah, there was like a priest. He had the right. crystal of light. He was going on a pilgrimage to another city, and they had to get there within five days, and they, the, the, the player characters are his escort. Yes. Right. So, exactly. It's an interesting uh, adventure. I think it's a little too long, though, for... Uh, it says it's, what, four hours? But I think it's a little bit longer than that. It's really long. Yeah. Yeah, from reading it and everything and looking at what the characters have to do, I think it is it is kind of long. Uh, most modules, I mean, you know, the Crystal Life, for example, let me tell you what I like about it is, you know, the person that possesses it, once you pick it up and everything, and if you try to use it, uh, your hair turn white. The hair turns white in that character. Mm. And, and causes mm. them to yearn it, so I guess they kind of like get greedy and selfish about it. Do they taste so. kind of like lemonade? <laughs> boom, boom, shh. <laughs> The crystal light. Uh, when I wrote that, I'm like, I so know Nick's going to be picking on this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, I think that uh, uh, most RPGA tournament modules, you know, it's a very short story when you start a tournament. You know, a short story, and then right there, they're in, and they're in the 
the, the action right there and then. It's not really a, a place to do a lot of role playing. No, it's, it's just, just meant time. to cover the couple hours that you dare to have some fun, and that's it. Right, yeah. exactly. Perfect example. I know people are always like, oh, what should I run at conventions? I need some advice. What module should I run? Don't run a module. What you do, go online, look keyword uh, one-page dungeons. There, yes. there was a whole contest for two or three years, and there's like, I don't know, a couple hundred pages worth of one-page dungeons, and they are perfect for conventions. They're about two to three hours, maybe four if you stretch it out. Just use them. There's no background. It just gives you basic information. And you can write up a whole story with it, too. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And have fun. So I guess that's going to complete the show. Yeah, I suppose so. I beat that crystal light to death. Oh, Nick. Carrying it over to the next segment. (laughs) Well, I guess we're going to head out on the road and say goodbye. And, uh, Will, Sounds thanks good. for joining us again this week. Of course. Looking forward to seeing you all again next week. Oh, I'm sure you will. Positively. And, uh, Nick, let's hope for no uh, bashing phone calls or, you know, emails. Ah, it's okay. I can handle it. So, all in fun. All in fun. Keep it original. Except, oh. except for that flaming phase spider or blow-up phase spider, whatever you had going on there. Yeah, that was kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> all right. Keep it original. Keep it old school. And good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good night. Roll for initiative.